Father, we just heard a reading from your victory song. We heard that you are mighty to save and that you have delivered your people perfectly. Lord, just as Israel has their enemy, Egypt, in their rearview mirror, and the promised land yet ahead, we too are your people today. Our greatest enemy, sin, if we are in Christ, is in our rearview mirror. And our eternal destiny, heaven, is ahead. And so help us to see this morning that this song is indeed for us. Lord, make us a singing people. Help us to see the great power spiritually there is in song. May we be a community here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church that is not necessarily known for our individual talents or the beauty of our voices, but may we be known for the faithfulness of our singing and the truths that we do sing. I pray that we would recover this dusty spiritual discipline. We would bring it into our lives and it would have a renewed impact on us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. It's a blessing to be with you today. So I got the passage in Exodus 15 that is all about song. Now you may not know this about me, but I used to be a music leader in college. I was not the greatest. I didn't really ever sing before that, but I was the only one who knew how to really play guitar. So they threw me up front and said, Kurt, you've got to learn. Thankfully, a lot of the uh, girls, including Yasmin, who were singing with me were, were much better singers. So I always told them in the back, turn up their mics louder than me, and I will just try to sing so that, um, so that I don't throw everyone off completely. Now what would happen though, is I'd get so nervous, I would strum so hard with a really thick pick, that a string would often break, every string would go out of tune, and it would just turn into a disaster. Um, but uh, God was still merciful and gracious, and he taught me a lot through leading through song. Now today, I get to still lead music. Um, if Brandon's ever sick or is going through surgery, I'm happy to step in and, and lead in that way. Um, or uh, daily, I, uh, our, the Robinson family in our living room tries to do family worship. Um, we, we either do piano or, or, or music, and so I get to lead my, my little girls and my wife in singing as well. Um, and so this has been a, something that has been on my heart, and so I think it's providential that it landed upon me um, to do this sermon, uh, as opposed to Kirk last week who said that um, he, he doesn't like to sing and he would probably, his voice would probably grate on everyone's nerves if he sang. Um, so the last section, though, Kirk dealt with, we heard last week that God drowned the Egyptians and he saved the Israelites and was glorified in doing so. This chapter opens with the very glorification that God deserves, a victorious song. So God last week said, I demand glory, I want glory from you, and I will get glory through um, causing you the, the Red Sea to part and you to be saved. And this week, we're going to see them actually glorifying God through song. You might ask, but why song? In the midst of a dramatic and serious portion of scripture, why would God intentionally insert a reflective song? I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, song has a way to engage us holistically. Deuteronomy 6 says, heart, mind, soul, and strength, we should worship God. There's nothing like song that engages all of those elements of your whole being at the same time. So there's a holistic range of emotions that God wants from all of us. He's created your emotions and your intellect and your physical vocal cords to all praise him at the same time. Another reason for remembrance, in Psalm 78, Israel is called to teach the coming generation all these things that the Lord has done. And so if you're like me, how often do you get a song stuck in your head? 
Um, it's really easy to have an earworm and to just go, even if you don't want to sing a dumb uh, tune, it pops into your head again and you remember it whether you like it or not. And so God has wired us to remember song and, and remembering the Exodus was the, was the most important thing that God wanted Israel to remember from the Old Testament. It is God's picture of saving by grace through faith. Lastly, joyous creativity in Psalm 96 and in Revelation, God says, sing to me a new song. And so part of being created in the image of a creative God, he wants us to be creative as well. And you would agree with me if there's some ways and sometimes that poetry or song hits your heart and strums your heartstrings in a way that prose and didactic teaching cannot and never will. Have you ever written a poem? Maybe to your loved one or maybe even writing a prayer to God. When you force yourself to put words into a rhyme scheme, you are you're working those creativity muscles and you're forced to praise God in unique and new ways. So these are some suggestions from scripture of why God inserts a song in the middle of a serious passage. Ultimately, song is the power to take the focus off oneself and put the focus on where it rightly deserves to be, on God himself. So this morning in Exodus 15, I want you to see that because God gloriously destroyed his enemies, purchases his people, and promises us a future, we must, saints, we must worship through song. We'll see this in three ways today. First, we have to sing from God's past faithfulness. We need to sing for present strength, and we need to sing to future promises. From past faithfulness, for present strength, and to future promises. So first of all, singing from God's past faithfulness. Look at me, look with me at verse one in Exodus 15. We see here that a good portion of this song is Moses' reflection on what God has done, past tense, for his people. We read, I will sing to the Lord, for he has, past tense, triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. This verse one is not just the beginning of it, but as we hear later, as Miriam picks up this again, we get the hint that this is also the title of the song. It is a summary or a thesis statement for what the rest of the song is gonna be about. It's gonna be about God getting victory over his drowning of Egypt and, and triumphing over his enemies. So let's just take a step back and pause there for a second before we go any further. I posed this question in the email to you this week, but hopefully you've had some time to think about it. Why isn't this the theme of most of our modern worship songs? I, can't, I can tell you that um, for certain, Exodus 15 would not get played on Caleb. It's too angry and too vicious. Not positive or encouraging enough. Unless you're Israel, then this was the most positive and encouraging act God would have done in their entire lives. Verse 4 through 10 goes into even greater detail as to the nature of the destruction of the Egyptian warriors. Much of this we heard from Kirk's sermon past week, but let me remind you about how detailed God goes into the song of his victory over these Egyptian warriors. Verse five, the enemy is sinking to the bottom of the ocean like a stone. Verse six, God is shattering the enemy like glass with a sledgehammer. Verse seven, God's fury is consuming them like stubble, which shows that they're not only being physically drowned, but the fire of God's judgment is also currently burning them alive in hell. It's not only a physical judgment, but there's also an eternal judgment upon those who are not trusted in Christ, but pursuing his people. You get the picture. 
This is not one obscure reference to God's wrath, but this is a time and time again, a vivid picture of how much pleasure God gets from destroying his enemies. Lest you pity the Egyptians and say, oh, poor them. Hear their motives for, for God's people in verse nine. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So even after all of the plagues, even the firstborn sons and daughters being killed, they haven't learned their lesson yet. The Egyptian warriors still think that they can overtake the Israelites. In the language that is used here of them wanting to pursue them and devour them is, is like a ravenous wolf that wants to gorge themselves on its prey. So unless you think, oh, poor Egyptians that God is being so mean to, these people, if it, they had it their way, they would recapture them, they would bring them back into slavery, they would kill many of them, and they would keep drowning their babies. So this is the enemy of God. So God is just to put them to death in the way he does, as we saw last week. And he is also right to tell us to sing about his justice as well. He loves his chosen people, and he will protect them at all costs because of their demonic sin. He will protect his people from the demonic evil forces that seek to overtake them. You have to remember, too, that God's plan from the beginning was to bring the Messiah, Jesus, from the lineage of the Israelites. So as you read here that we are called to sing about God delivering Israel, this is actually your deliverance song, too. God was so adamantly opposed to any enemies of Israel, not only for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the seed that would come out of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would then save the world, including you. So we have to see why God is so jealous for his people in protecting that lineage. It's because he knows that he's going to bring his son from that line as well. So in this way, when you read about Israel's salvation, if you're a Christian, you're reading about your own salvation history too. You're reading about your family tree by faith. And God's providential care to ensure his seed would come through Abraham to bless the nations, including you. Isn't that wonderful good news for us today? Therefore, when you hear this song, this summons to sing to God over his past victory over evil, this summons extends to you this morning if you're in Christ. If we never sing songs, listen, brothers and sisters, if we never sing songs worshiping God like this, worshiping his justice and his wrath and his ability to kill his enemies, if we never sing songs like that, then I believe we are in great danger of idolatry. We are in danger of creating a God in our own American image, a God of comfort, a God who is skewed to only be joy and only to be grace and love, which he is, but we can't truncate his personality. We can't truncate the character of God, and I'm afraid we do. Consider this, would you have much reason to sing if God didn't promise to judge Hitler for killing six million Jews? Would you still have reason to sing to this God if in a terrible circumstance, a murderer came and, and killed your family and your children and God wasn't good enough to promise to punish them and bring justice upon them? Would that be a good God you'd wanna to sing to? No, that would not, he would not be God at all if he was not going to bring justice upon that which he's already condemned and said he will judge. We ought to be eternally grateful that God will even judge and punish the daily evil around us. In, in, our, in our homes, in our workplaces, 
in traffic. God will judge all evil. Selfishness, arrogance, favoritism, those who tempt us, those who harm us physically or emotionally, God will bring an end to all of that evil. He will judge it. Consider for a second the sin and evil you've done in your life. And then if you're a Christian, hear about his grace towards you in verse 13. Rather than judging you, look at verse 13 with me. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Is this not true of you, brothers and sisters? Consider the countless times before, after coming to Christ, God protected you from doing more damage to yourself than you would have done. Consider the thousands of times God protected you from the trap of unbelief that would have led your soul into hell. Consider the constant faithfulness he has in daily upholding your faith and encouraging you. It is God's sheer grace that he chose Israel and not Egypt. It is God's pure and unmerited favor that he chose you in Christ and, and not someone else. And so we should be in awe of saying, God, I deserve this justice. I deserve to be shattered like a glass vase into a million pieces. And yet, because of your, your mercy and your unconditional election, I'm a recipient of your unmerited favor. Isn't that good news? Isn't that cause to sing? I propose that if we reflect on God's glorious victory over evil, and the, and the evil in our hearts too, and his faithfulness toward us in spite of our rebellion, you have so many reasons to sing, brothers and sisters. Let's be honest. Why don't we sing? We don't sing like this because oftentimes we've forgotten the enormity of God's faithfulness towards us in Christ. We've forgotten how enormous God's faithfulness is in the thousands of times, the millions of times in the past, he has rescued us from ourselves and from the tempter and from people who would wish to do us harm. More often we get so preoccupied and overwhelmed by the present or future tasks that we don't spend as much time recounting the past of God's faithfulness to deliver us time and time again. Let's gain perspective and gratitude and joy whenever you're having a tough day, whenever you're being tempted, can you sing great is thy faithfulness from a sincere heart? I hope that you can. I hope that you will choose to employ this, a song like this, like Israel did, to think about God's past faithfulness, to sing about the many times he's rescued you, knowing what you deserve on your own. Why do you think the Star Spangled Banner is sung before every major sporting event? It's because we recognize that we wouldn't even be able to enjoy sport or recreation without the men who fought for our freedom. While I usually only hear the first verse of this song, there's actually four verses. Let me read to you the final and fourth verse that never gets sung. I'll start in the middle. And I'm not going to sing it for you, so, so don't worry. Uh, Praise the power, capital P power, God, that hath made and preserved us as a nation. Then conquer we must, when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. There is a bone-chilling power to unify the nation whenever we sing together in song. We felt this very um, tangibly after 9-11, didn't we? 
we felt this when we, when we saw the flags flying on people's cars and everywhere, and we, we realized that we, we are a united nation. Song has a way of, of stirring us in our hearts and reminding us of God's faithfulness and that we are, we are um, recipients of his great favor. Consider then, if we have our bones chilled and our, our emotions stirred by the star-spangled banner, consider that we get to sing songs to the King of kings and Lord of lords who eternally protects us whose reign will last far beyond the demise of this own nation. Think that we get to sing eternal heavenly songs because we are citizens of an even better kingdom than America. But as I already mentioned, singing is never meant to end at simply remembering the past, but that remembrance is always intended to infuse our present with sober, hopeful valor, to face our present enemies and to worship God, to do great things for him today. The past is never meant to just stay there to reminisce on old times, but it's always meant to infuse us with valor for the enemies that we must face today. Which brings us to our second point. We should sing for God's present strength. Look with me at verses two and three. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse three, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Moses switches from the past tense of what had happened to Egypt to now the present tense and the universal truths about the God of Israel that we need to hear. Many of them were probably thinking, okay, Moses, you got us across the Red Sea. Now what? We left everything we knew back in Egypt, our lives, our livelihood, our economy, and now you've taken us out, and now we are in the wilderness, and now that you've defeated our enemy, great, thank you, but now what, Moses? We've left behind everything we've ever known, and now Israel's only safety net is God himself. In this, at this point, Israel could not fall back on their ability to cook their own meals and have their own permanent houses. They were a wilderness people now. So they said, we have to have God be our warrior. We have to have God be strong for us because we literally have nowhere else to turn. If you've ever moved to a new city, a new, gone to a new school, joined a new team, went to a new church, or started a new job, you kind of know this feeling, don't you? Now what? Who am I to trust? Where will I, how and where will I fit in? What am I supposed to do? Now the biggest difference between our experience and Israel's is that we hear further in verses 14 through 16 that unlike the, the little fears and pressures we feel when entering into a new social environment, they had more than social pressure upon them, but they had four big enemies, if you look with me at verses 14 through 16, that they had to deal with. Before they could find peace in the promised land, they had to get through Philistia, Edom, Moab, and Canaan. These are four other powers, not as strong as Egypt, but still formidable, that they had to get through. They, still being a ragtag bunch of wanderers, would not have had the military might or resources to protect themselves against any of these established enemies. Therefore, by sight, by counting up all the details and the men and the weapons, they were doomed. Great, they got across the Red Sea, but by all sight, they were doomed. 
But by faith, they had no choice but to sing verses two and three in light of their present circumstances. The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is a man of war. Notice a big theme present in this song is that God was not merely a man of war in the past, but he presently is and will always be an ongoing man of war. Look at verse 16 and consider how singing this song would have brought present strength to the Israelites. Look at verse 16 with me. Terror and dread fall upon them. That's their enemies. Because of the greatness of your arm, they, that's Israel's enemies, these four opponents, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So God here promises them that he is going to make his enemies, his people's enemies, as good as still stone. God uses spiritual and psychological warfare, kind of like a Jedi mind trick, to, to freeze the enemies in their place so that they are just as harmless as stones that line a driveway on a way into your home. They are like, like inanimate, harmless stones that line a driveway so that Israel has a clear runway home. So on paper, they have bigger, stronger men, better weapons, but God is saying that if you fight by faith with me, then they are as good as done, that I will get you to your final destination because I am the Lord. While human strength is inadequate against spiritual forces, we, saints, are to wage spiritual warfare and lob a grenade behind enemy lines when we worship God by faith in song. We do this too. Whenever we worship God through song, we bring his eternal truths into our present moment, into our bodies, into our, our minds, hearts, souls, so that we are strengthened and we are able to wage spiritual warfare as well. We're able to take these realities of God being a man of war and look, about, look out at all the uncertainty we have and have strength in the moment. He promises to do so. So lest you think that, that singing is an Old Testament antiquated way of bringing strength to a people, let me remind you of the church in Acts and how God's people post-cross also found strength and why we need to too. I want to remind you of Acts 16.25. Paul and Silas at midnight were in jail and they were praying and what else were they doing? Singing hymns. Paul and Silas were in jail praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. If you know the story in Acts 16, you know that the jailer goes on to be converted, to put his faith in Christ, and his whole, his whole household is saved as well. Paul and Silas didn't let a few steel bars in front of them keep them from singing. They knew that God, if he wanted to accomplish his purpose and still had a plan for them, he would do it. And therefore, they said, whether we're free or whether we're enslaved, we will sing to the Lord, for he is our strength. We must be church. We must be a singing people if we expect to have spiritual strength in the present. Even if we wind up persecuted and in jail, we must victoriously sing as free men and free women because our freedom is not contingent upon whether our government says so, but upon whether Christ says so.
And lest you think that singing is only supposed to be one time a week here right before the sermon in church, let me pose the crazy idea to you that you have the ability to sing throughout the week. As long as you're not in like a corporate meeting or, or maybe on the phone with your boss, or let's say you're, you have really thin walls in your apartment and it's 3 a.m., barring those times, you have ample opportunities to sing. You have more times than you think you do. And this is a spiritual discipline, like I said, that you need to dust off the cover of and you need to revive in your heart. If this is true that these manly warriors got strength through this practice, why are we not doing it more often? Why do we neglect this great discipline? And you you might say, well, I'm terrible at singing. Well, you might be. I'm not very great myself. God nowhere says that the tu- it has to be in tune for it to have power. The power comes through faith. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yet, if we're honest, let's consider that we sing so little to God, out loud to God and in prayer because we spend so much time pre- preoccupied about ourselves. True spiritual singing requires us to get our eyes off ourselves and to put them on God. We don't sing like we should because we're proud. We don't sing like we should because ultimately I think that we are proud. Singing to God worshipfully requires humility, not only because we have to be more concerned about worship than our own reputation and people looking at us funny, but we also are, we don't sing when we're proud also because we think that we have enough internal present strength to handle our problems ourselves and we don't need to get outside strength from God in our situation. If it's true that just as it was in Exodus, it is for us today that we get present strength from this practice, we don't do it because oftentimes we want God for a little help, but we don't think we're utterly dependent upon him. We forget that our, our battle is, is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We think the battle is just against the, the people who were to come against us with flesh and blood. We think, I can logic my way out of this. I can coordinate my way out of this. I can, I can exact vengeance on my own terms. Instead of waging spiritual warfare, one of, one of the best weapons to use is song. Now, the ultimate remedy for us, if pride really is one of the greatest hindrances and blockades that keep us from doing this, then what's the answer? How do we become a singing people? If I were to just to tell, tell you today, start singing more, you might do that for a week or two, but then I can almost guarantee you that after that, it would, it would drop off and it would fade, and you would say, I, I sound silly, and people make fun of me, and I don't want to do this anymore, and it would probably fade. But if you have a heart-level reason, if your heart has been captivated by the gospel, then I want to show you the power source so that you don't have to conjure up a false song but your heart, like it was for, for Israelites, was so overflowing with rejoicing and gratitude and thanksgiving that you can't help but overflow into song naturally. What's the answer? How do we get this so that it just doesn't fade? Look at verses 13 and 16. In verses 13 and 16, we have our answer. It says, you have led your st- in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And in verse 16, it says, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. I want to focus in on those two words, redeemed and purchased. Those are commercial terms that indicate that Israel was once Egypt's possession 
And now, whose possession are they? They're God's. They were once slaves, worked to the bone, and abused by their cruel masters. But now, by God's grace alone, they have been bought by the ultimate, glorious, benevolent master. They haven't just been bought to work for another, to work for another master, just to be a hired hand, but they've been bought out of slavery, and they are not just a helpful, useful worker, but they are now God's prized possession. Saints, if you are in Christ today, if you've been bought out of spiritual slavery, then you are not just a, a useful tool to God, but you are his prized possession. As we heard Tim read from Zephaniah 3, one day Christ will sing over you. And I believe now, even now he's rejoicing over his saints and he's singing in praise and thanking God for the grace in your life. We are his prized possession if we've been bought by the blood. Like Israel, we have been slaves to earthly masters and to our passions and desires. We have all fallen prey to the gods of this world, to reputation, money, success, and, and the things that promise us freedom, but then trick us because it's a moving target. And once we think we have it, it puts the carrot out a little bit further. We've all been tricked, and we've all been in that spiritual slavery. Consider the things that you once turned to or may still turn to for present strength apart from the Lord. Unlike the Lord, there are few reasons to sing to idols because they leave us insecure and wanting more. God is a God who says, I will be your portion. You have all of me. You have the fullness of me in Christ. I'm not going anywhere, and I will love you. I can love you no more than I love you today. I love you perfectly, and therefore you have it all, and your heart can overflow. Whereas the things of this world that we try to find strength in, they always leave us wanting more. It's like salt water. The more we drink it, the more we realize that it hasn't quenched our thirst, and we keep on wanting more. The, the people who go to sports games, especially in England, the English Premier League, singing is a big deal for soccer fans, or football fans, rather. Um, they, sing, uh, they sing awesome songs to, 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 to motivate their team. And as, as, as amazing as those songs are and how cool it is to hear a bunch of rowdy guys singing behind their team, really, at the end of the day, if you peel back the spiritual surface, all it is is putting a little ball into a net. What ultimately, what eternal significance are they singing about? These are people, and then there's fans who spend thousands of dollars to fly all the way across the country to go to these games, to enjoy the time. And go, you can worship God in that time, that's fine. The soccer itself is not the sin. I love soccer. But peel back the surface. If that is someone's idol, whether it's a sports team or whether it's your, your, your future job or whether it's your retirement, or whether, whether it's a significant other that you want to write so many poems to because you're so in love with them, ultimately, those things are, can be good things, but they will always leave us thirsting for more because they are not God. They cannot save us from death. They cannot save us from our sin. Only Jesus Christ can. And so the source of our humble, worshipful singing must be in the fact that we know without a doubt that like Israel, we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the way that you can be forgiven, the way that we can be forgiven today is that 
Jesus Christ, when he looked upon you and he saw you in your pitiful, helpless state, when he saw you singing to idols, when he saw you miserable and groaning and grumbling rather than singing, he came to you in his mercy. And what he said is, I will experience the punishment and the penalty of your sin that you deserve. I will take upon me God's wrath. I will go to the cross and on the cross, I will groan so that you can rejoice. I will groan with agony so that you can sing with jubilation. How do we know this? From Psalm 22, Jesus took this Psalm that he may have heard countless times as a little boy in the temple, hearing Psalm 22 sung time and time again, And he took this song, this psalm, and he applied it to himself on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus took what was once sung in a song, and he took it and he groaned the words out with deep anguish, taking upon the judgment that we all deserved. And because Jesus not only laid his life down for us, rescuing us from spiritual slavery, but also rose from the dead, defeating death, ascending into heaven, ruling with his father in his new resurrected body, we can experience resurrected life as well. We can be bought back from the darkness and we, our feet can get set on solid ground so that we, have always, we always have ample reason to sing. We who were proud enemies of Christ because of our sin, just like Egypt, can receive forgiveness and join God in his triumphant victory if we would bow our knee to him in repentance and faith. When we humble ourselves, when we bow our knee and say, it's not about me putting on a show, but it's about an utter gratitude and our knee is bowed to the Savior through repentance and faith, then we cannot help but sing. If you are not a Christian, we're so happy you're here today. We want you to know that this forgiveness, this redemption is available to you. And by grace alone, God today wants you to be able to sing. May today be the day of salvation if you're not a believer. Put your faith in Christ and you will have ample reason to sing. That he will wash away your sin and fill you with this song of victory as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, recognize that 100% of your strength comes from the Lord. Don't let your God-given abilities and your God-given resources allow you to forget the giver of those gifts and resources, but always have a song in your heart. Are you ever, have you ever been distraught, overwhelmed, defeated, or hopeless? Consider that you are not your own, but you've been bought with a price. Look up to God, remember his present strength, and sing with your whole body. I can't tell you how many times this simple spiritual tool has helped me whenever I felt overwhelmed. I remember pulling up to my first day at Cisco, being kind of nervous about what would happen, and I listened to House of God Forever, a song about Psalm 23 in the car before walking into work. And just through hearing a simple song and singing Psalm 23 out loud, God put my heart and my mind completely at ease. And I was able to walk into that day saying, whatever happens, you are my shepherd, God. And whether I get a paycheck from this company or that, you are my provider, you are my shepherd. I think sometimes we overcomplicate the problems and things that bring us anxiety and overwhelm us in our lives. We think, I have, to, I have to psychologize myself out of this. I have to figure out and solve this problem when oftentimes God wants you to simply humbly sing to him. A beautiful illustration 
of the power of this happened even last week here in this church as we all sang Amazing Grace a cappella together. The power of that was when there was no instrumentation, it forced all of you, it forced me to not be a consumer of music, but to be an active participant and producer of worship to God. God wants us to sing through instruments. He wants us to sing together, and it's good and right for there to be worship leaders. But don't ever let the instrumentation lull you into thinking that you are a consumer of music only, but your voice, no matter how low or out of tune or bad you might think it is, your voice is a a valuable ingredient in the worship of Cambrian Park Baptist Church together on a Sunday morning and throughout the week as you sing to God by faith. You might say song is one of those nice things you can tack on, but let me give you an example, a reminder of how important song is. I heard a pastor of a a story of a pastor in England who said that he knows when men get saved. He knows when men get saved. It's when they come to church and they truly start singing from the heart. This is biographical. You know, he's talking about his own congregation. He's saying that when I see men come in, maybe their wives drag them into church and they sit there and they, they're going through the motions, they're bored, they're, you know, they're waiting, maybe they're coming up with their to-do list in their head. When he sees those men get the gospel and come in. And when he stays to see, starts to see the men start singing, he knows a change has taken place in their heart. Now, I share this story with you, not to say that this is a 100% assurance, right? Singing can be faked um, and it can be used for self-glory as well. Also, there's reasons why sometimes you're not able to sing. So I don't tell you the story for that, to say it's an ultimate indicator. But if we are saved Christians and our hearts have been transformed and we have all the reasons that I've mentioned for us to be overflowing with rejoicing and gratitude, then we will want to sing and we will come not only here on Sunday morning, but our lives want to be characterized and marked by song and praise. Don't let singing just be a thermometer to help you gauge where you're at with your spiritual walk, but let it be a thermostat to warm your heart, mind, and soul to holiness. When you don't feel like worshiping God, When God seems distant, turn to the psalms of lament. Turn to those songs that that cry out to God in agony. Even the psalms that say, where are you, God? Or how long, O Lord? Turn to those psalms and use them as a thermostat to tune your heart to God. For our third and final point, I want us to consider how we are to sing to God's future promises. So we've seen we need to sing from past faithfulness for present strength, and lastly, to God's future promises. And the way I'm using the word to there is not like singing to them like you're singing to a person, but I'm saying it in the sense that someone on New Year's Eve would sing to joy and, and prosperity in the new year. You're singing to something because you're on your way to it, and you're hoping for that in the future. So we sing to God's future promises, looking forward to them and victoriously marching as we reach them in the future. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. We're told, so Moses here switches to the future tense from the past to the present, now in the future tense, and he tells Israel and us, verse 17, you will bring them, that's God's people, in and plant them on your, holy, on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. 
we, hear, we see here that Moses is not only a prophet, but he's also a worship leader as well. He's a worship leader and a prophet who's calling his nation to, to not be so flummoxed by the situation they're in of saying, oh, we're on, a, we're on the, the shore with Israel in our rearview mirror. What are we going to do now? He wants them to pick up their eyes forward and, remember, and for them to remember the God that will ultimately deliver them home, the God who is on his throne forever and ever. There's great imagery here of them planting themselves in God's mountain. Israel throughout Old and New Testament is described as being a plant, a vineyard, a tree, a branch. But what's interesting about this particular promise is that Moses was telling the people in front of him that they are to plant themselves on the mountain of God, likely Jerusalem and Mount Zion. But this current generation that was listening to this they would not have inherited this promise. If you've read further in Exodus before, you know what happens. You know that this current generation, save Caleb and and Joshua, don't actually get to cross over the Jordan and inherit these promises. They don't actually get to plant themselves in the promised land. So you might ask, Kurt, how is Israel able to sing these future promises if they themselves died before entering the promised land? I'll give you two amazing answers, and I think it'll change the way we sing God's future promises as well. First, while the original audience largely did not enjoy the physical blessings of being brought over Jordan into the promised land, if their faith was in God, then they are currently enjoying the perfect, eternal, and heavenly sanctuary that is being spoken of here by Moses truly planting and planted in God's presence in the eternal Mount Zion. So we know that although Moses wasn't able to inherit the physical promised land, Hebrews 4 tells us that he entered a better rest. And so this promise came true for that first generation in the sense that their future would be marked by faith in the heavenlies with their king. Second, even though the first generation didn't physically inherit this promise, We need to recognize that he's not just speaking to that first generation, but he's speaking to Israel proper, to God's people of all time, including the next generation. This promise went beyond its first audience and was to be sung in all future generations that would inherit the physical promised land. You might think when you read that Moses spent his entire life guiding his people through the desert only to be stopped and for him to die before entering. You might read that and say, wow, how disappointing, how anticlimactic. Does God take pleasure in leading his sheep all the way to the front porch and then slamming the door in their face? Does God take pleasure in causing Moses to die before he can inherit the promised land? Of course not. Moses and all believe in Israel experienced a, phys- a, a spiritual rest that was much better than, than any milk or honey Canaan could offer. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, this amazing promise is for you, that the God who purchased you will certainly keep you and see you into heaven. He will not lose one of his sheep. There is so much cause for us to sing here this morning, because if it were up to us, we would all lose our salvation. If it were up to us alone on our own strength and power, we would all lose our salvation. But thanks be to God, that he causes his true disciples to persevere till the end. Uh, This week I heard sadly about a a former pastor named Joshua Harris, 
who used to speak at conferences alongside Piper Endeavor, wrote many books. He came out this week saying he's no longer a Christian. What do we think about Joshua Harris? Well, first we should pray for him. We should realize that one, all those years that he was at these conferences and, and leading his church as a pastor, we should be warned by this. There was either a deep self-deception that was going on and he's not a Christian and he's only showing his true colors now or by God's grace, he is one of God's sheep. And although he's being rebellious now, while he still has life, there's still hope for Josh Harris that God would, will discipline him and bring him back into the fold and see him into heaven in the end. Time will tell. We don't know how, what will happen to Josh Harris, but um, certainly be praying for him and be lifting him up and use this as a cautionary tale to you that it doesn't matter if you're a pastor or if you're a deacon or if you've been walking with the Lord for decades, none of us are beyond examining our own salvation and saying, oh, I will, I will for sure enter into the promised land. We should all work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But if our faith is truly in Christ, then this promise does apply to us. If we have been saved, we can have a biblical assurance from the Holy Spirit, and we can have the promise that we will one day enter into the better rest. So we sing to these future promises. Sometimes I think God allows our lives to be hard and riddled with thorns and thistles and difficult relationships because he wants us to yearn for heaven that much more. He wants us to not be satisfied with our day-to-day lives. He wants us to have a growing hunger for heaven and a longing for his kingdom to come in its fullness. And so don't be discouraged by that, but, but sing to God's future promises by faith. Get that eternal perspective. Secondly, not only was was this promise to the eternal future, but these promises were for Israel's children and children's children who would indeed plant themselves on God's holy mountain. This song was designed to teach the coming generations about God's faithfulness so that they would remain faithful and accomplish God's earthly purposes too. God never wants his people to develop an escapist mindset, only saying, God, get me out of here. But God wants us to get our hands dirty and have a mindset of bringing his heavenly kingdom down here on earth. He wants us us to to long for heaven, to pray for it, but to also say, God, I want to to be a change agent. I want to, to bring your redemption here on this fallen soil. So while we know that the next generation from Moses was far from perfect, they indeed made good on God's promise. And if we're honest, then our children in, in the, the evangelical church today, they don't sound much better at all than this next generation at all, because we hear about kids, some crazy high percentage, like 80% going to college and losing their faith. So if we say the next generation after Moses, that they didn't do the greatest job, well, they still inherited the promised land, and they still fulfilled this promise, even though they weren't perfect. And they did probably much better than, than, sadly, a lot of evangelical children are doing today. We therefore must observe that one of the primary ways that this faith is preserved and transferred to the next generation is through this very song. The way that this faith, this reminder of who God is and how we can actually pass that to the future, not just our eternal future, but the future right in front of us, our children and our children's children, the way we're supposed to pass that along is through song. You might ask, well, how successful was this strategy? How successful 
was teaching the next generation about God and passing this song along so that God's people would remain faithful. I'll tell you, for one, you're reading the song right now, aren't you? A thousand year, thousands and thousands of years later. If, the fact that you're reading it in your Bible right now shows how effective that song was and that they didn't forget it. So yes, the song was effective. And yes, the people strayed and rebelled, but God was always faithful to his promise. And he used the song so that his people, and even to this day, we don't forget about the Exodus, but we remember his very character and his grace. Also, if today is not enough of a proof for you, John tells us in Revelation 15.3 that this song of Moses will also be sung in heaven. How is that for sustaining power? How is that for an earworm, a song that gets in your ear and never fades? This song would not only permeate throughout the entire Old Testament, wind up in our laps today as we're reading it, but it would also be one of the songs that we sing in heaven according to Revelation 15. That's how powerful song is. If God wants the truths of the lyrics to sustain and persevere, he will ensure that it happens. So saints, we sing two future promises, both to the heavenly future and to the future right in front of us, our next, the next generation of, of children in our church and, and people we know who are going to pass, pass along the gospel. So how will this look for us? How can we do everything in our power to raise up the next generation and teach them to trust in this victorious, faithful God? The last part of this section gives us a very practical answer. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. <coughs> God gives women and men a practical strategy here. Verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has, has thrown into the, he has thrown into the sea. So Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, the prophetess, she sang just the first two lines, but like I said, it was just the title of the song, so she would have actually sang this entire song to the women. The significance of teaching it explicitly to the women in this passage is not only because women have better rhythm than men. It wasn't only because women knew how to play the tambourine and dance better than men. There's another reason why God wanted the song repeated and explicitly taught to the women here. The implied purpose was so that this song would be sung in every family, in every home, especially to children from a young age. Women, sisters, and mothers, listen to me. You have tremendous influence, more than you think in shaping the next generation and causing the Lord's heavenly kingdom to expand on this earth. That is what it truly means to be fruitful and multiply. It's not just having children, but it's, but it's singing to them. It's teaching them the promises of God so that they would be spiritually fruitful in their lives. Who do you think has a greater overall shaping influence in our children's lives in this church? The pastor or their mothers? Who do you think over the long run, counting up the hours spending with the children, has a more significant role in shaping children's lives? The pastor or their mothers? I submit to you, the mothers do. The world tells women they need to demonstrate their value by being independent or demonstrate their value by how much money they make. In contrast, God wants women to have tremendous influence in changing the world, 
but not by the world's path or power structure. Think about it. What was one of Israel's continual sins? Their failure to raise up children in the way they should go and pass along this to the next generation. So God says to the women and to the mothers, I want you to shape children in homes with the truth of God. Miriam's role as a prophetess teaching the women was not to be pitied or looked down upon, but was gloriously life-giving and legacy-shaping. Mothers, aim high with your children. They are in a privileged position to be here in the church. Sing them glorious hymns that we sing every week. Sing scripture memory songs to them. And in doing so, you will plant your little olive shoots on Mount Zion, and they will do some serious damage as arrows that you shoot out into the world one day. My sister, who's a first grade teacher, told me this week, when taught in song, it will last for long. When taught in song, it will last for long. And so let's teach our children. Let's raise up the next generation and, and teach them these truths in song so they will stick with them and they will be faithful. Women who are not mothers in our church, your job is no less important. Be like your great-great-grandmother in the faith, Sarah, who through faith did not fear anything that was truly frightening in 1 Peter 3. Use your God-given helper instincts to bless the church and disciple the next generation. As a tangible illustration, I want to read a small portion from Becca Merkel's book, Eve in Exile. She talks about the unique and glorious role of women. Hear her words. She writes, We women take one of the most difficult theological truths, the incarnation, and attempt to show that truth through our celebrations. Christmas, she's talking about. The men can talk about the incarnation. Church fathers can write important treaties about it. And pastors can preach about it. Theologians can parse it and define it. But we women are the ones who make it taste like something. We make it smell good. How crazy is that? And for my next trick, I will take Athanasius's treaties, and I will say it with cookies and wrapping paper and cinnamon and marshmallows and colored lights and tablecloths and shopping trips and ham. And I will do it in such a way that my four-year-old will really get it and it will send deep roots into his soul where it will anchor his loves and his loyalties and shape his allegiances well into his 90s. Femininity is powerful and it is persuasive and it is compelling. It's not an accident that God inserted this portion at the end of the song that specifically Miriam was called out to teach the women this song. Women in your helper roles, because we believe in complementarianism, just because God has not gifted you or equipped you to, to stand behind this pulpit, you are preaching a sermon with your lives. And you are taking the straightforward truths that sometimes men speak about, and you are powerfully applying them and using the gifts God has given you to teach the next generation. You have such an important role in this church and in the advancement of the kingdom. God uses the things like singing and dancing and tambourines to fulfill the great commission and make disciples. So harness your creativity for God. If you're good at a, at a certain thing, use that to bless the church and to bring up the next generation. Now, lest I just focus on the women, how are men to help in this as well? Men, just as Moses led by initiating this song, as we saw in verse one, men lead your families 
through bold and faithful worship. Lead in humble service, heartfelt Bible study and prayer, and even lead in out-of-tune manly song. Remember, if Moses can lead this song with a supposed speech impediment, then you can too. Church, let's sing to God's future promises with an unshakable confidence that God is reigning and will continue to reign forever and ever. Remember that your life was as good as dead and Jesus purchased you back by his own blood on the cross. And now that you are God's possession, God is looking at each one of your vocal cords right now and he's saying, mine. He looks at each one of your vocal cords and he says, mine. Sing from his past faithfulness for present strength and two future promises. If you do this by genuine faith, then you will bring God the very glorification he deserves. And even in death, you will be eternally victorious as you reign with him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for neglecting the spiritual discipline of song. Lord, help us to see that it wasn't an accident that you dropped this into the middle of this this important book in the Pentateuch. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be people who are so overwhelmed by the fact that you've purchased us, you've redeemed us from the darkness, that we must sing. Lord, whenever we face difficult tasks, whenever we face enemies, whenever we're tempted spiritually, I pray that we would combat that with song. Lord, just as Israel's enemies were but stone, I pray that we would see all of the current enemies in our lives and the things that seek to frustrate us, we would see them as powerless as well if we have you on our side. I pray, God, that we would be a church that is full of joy and rejoicing and singing, not just with our mouths, but from our hearts. May we engage all of our being in song to you. Father, I thank you, God, that we also have the responsibility and privilege of raising up the next generation. I pray that we would all be more diligent in listening to scripture memory verses, that we would sing them, we would have your word upon our heart, and we would teach it to our next generation as well. Do this great work by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.